0: Hi, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. The current series is based on the first book I wrote called Watch. Watch is essentially an exposition on Jesus' talk he gave to his disciples just prior to his death and resurrection, while they were all sitting or maybe standing, I don't know, on the Mount of Olives. (laughs) That talk is widely known as the Olivet Discourse. You can read the Olivet Discourse in the Book of Matthew chapter twenty four and twenty-five, Mark chapter thirteen, and Luke chapter twenty-one. If you haven't done so, I'd suggest you read all three accounts through a few times. Then, if this is your first time joining me on the podcast, I'd suggest going back and starting with episode number one. We've came a long way in this study, and there's some stuff at this point that would be much easier to understand if you're familiar with what we've already covered. If you're reading along in the book, what I'm covering in this episode is found in chapter 19. You don't need to get the book if you learn better by listening. I'm essentially reading through an updated version of Watch on the podcast and adding a few things here and there. If you learn better by reading, the book is available on Amazon or by emailing me. There are a few charts contained in the book that might be helpful to you. My contact information is going to follow at the end of the podcast. Many can clearly remember Operation Desert Storm, the code name for the combat portion of the Persian Gulf War that took place in January and February of 1991. You might have even participated in it. If you did, thank you for your service to your country. The full fury of conventional weaponry of 34 coalition nations, including the United States in the lead role, showered down on the nation of Iraq for over a month and a half. Iraq's entire infrastructure was destroyed. Roads, reliable water and food supplies and utilities. Homes were erased from the earth. Many people were annihilated. There was nowhere safe to hide. My wife Angela and I spent a great deal of time watching the war unfold on television. For the first time ever, the United States Department of Defense was supplying first-hand video footage of battle events only hours after they would taken place. This included videos from reconnaissance drones that were searching for targets, along with cruise missiles in which the video would turn to static after the missile had hit their targets. I doubt that I'll ever forget the surveillance drone footage of a wedding taking place somewhere outside of Baghdad after several days of destruction had already occurred. In the middle of chaos, people were still eating, they were drinking, and getting married and celebrating. Seeing events of normal life take place in the middle of extreme difficulty helped me to relate to the next thing Jesus spoke of during the Olivet Discourse. Despite extreme hardships and challenges that will arise during the end of the age, life will go on. Some will be faithful and watching for the return of Jesus. Others will not. Do you remember the four questions that brought about the Olivet Discourse? The way that I broke them down is, when will we see these things happen? What will be the sign that these things are about to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and presence back on the earth? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So far during his Olivet Discourse, Jesus has spent a few minutes giving great answers for the questions regarding the signs. One question remains to be answered. That's the when question. (laughs) When will these things happen? The when question also concerns when the return of Jesus will occur. To sum up Jesus' answer as to when all of these things would take place, He didn't know. That's correct. At least prior to His death, burial, and resurrection, the Son of God, in His humanness, had not been given the answers to that question by His Heavenly Father. I'll read what he said to you. This is found in Matthew 24, verse 36. But no man knows the day and hour, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but my Father only. This is the way Mark put it in uh, chapter 13, verse 32. But no man knows the day and hour, not the angels which are in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Those that ask questions such as, Since Jesus is God, did he know, uh, fill in the blank, when he was on earth? Uh, Well, there are several scriptures that inform us that the human, Jesus, only knew what God the Father revealed to him. God came to earth in the unenhanced form of a human named Jesus. He had all our human limitations, including being subject to the will and revelations of Father God. Why didn't the universe spin out of control during the 33 or so years Jesus was limited to human form? Because God the Father was not in human form. The Most High, the Transcendent, Father God, Yahweh, continued to have it all under control. Of course, Jesus had the advantage of experiencing very real and personal communion with God the Father, which would have given him quite a leg up on other humans to say the least. He unquestionably recognized the voice of his Father. He also knew that to know himself was to know God the Father. God the Father did reveal a great deal to his Son while he was on earth. But like other humans, Jesus had a finite amount of knowledge about the world we live in and its history. But he also knew about what his Father supernaturally revealed to him, about those who were around him, and about the future. Jesus' answer regarding the when these things would take place was a twofold I don't know answer. Part number one is that even though we can recognize the signs of his coming, no one knows when those signs will begin, not even Jesus, but only the Father. The second fold of Jesus' I don't know answer is that Jesus is saying that even when we see the signs indicating his return will be soon, all we know is that his return is imminent. But we still won't know the day or hour it will take place. The sign of the Antichrist committing the abomination of desolation will signal that the world is exactly in the middle of a seven-year tribulation period. However, although many like to guess and try to come up with formulas, no one has a reliable clue when that seven-year period may begin. Then, Even when the sign of the abomination of desolation takes place, no one will know when the final sign of the sun, the moon, and the stars will occur that will accompany the return of Jesus. Those who are alive and watchful at the time will know that once the abomination of desolation occurs, Jesus' return will happen sometime within the next three and a half years, or less as time during the second half of the tribulation period ticks away. There are also events relating to God's judgment that will take place after the rapture, but prior to the end of the tribulation period that will take time to occur. Events that will take several months to run their course. So, the rapture would need to take place sometime after the midpoint of the tribulation, but several months before the end of it. The events I'm speaking of are associated with the seven trumpets being blown referred to in the book of Revelation. Next, Jesus makes a statement that almost seems contrary to what he just said. Having just said that no one knows when his return will be, Jesus goes on to say how it is both not good and unnecessary to be caught off guard by his return. He gave a couple of illustrations to make his point comparing those who are watchful with those who are not. First comes an example using a well-known character from the Old Testament. A righteous zookeeper we've all heard about, and a mariner named Noah. This is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 37 to 39. But like the days of Noah, so will also be the coming of the Son of Man. For like in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and didn't know until the flood came and took everyone away." So shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. The Olivet Discourse comparison of the story of Noah to the end of the age is only found in the book of Matthew, although the same comparison is found elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 17, verses 26 to 28. In the Luke account, it looks like Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover when he used the Noah illustration. That's Luke 17, 11. This was the same journey that eventually will find Jesus in Jerusalem for the last time. He and his disciples had not yet even reached Jericho when he was asked by some Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come. That's Luke 17.20. Jesus gave the Pharisees a brief answer. However, Scripture says that Jesus continued his answer concerning his second coming later on with his disciples. If this passage in the book of Luke was indeed properly placed in chronological order, this conversation regarding his coming came several days, perhaps even up to a week, before the Olivet Discourse. Much of what Jesus told them in the Luke account is repeated in the Olivet Discourse. You can read what Jesus told his disciples regarding his coming in Luke 17, 22 to 37. When we find a nearly identical passage in two different Gospels that don't appear to be in the same chronological order. Some jump to the conclusion that at least one of the Gospel writers must have gotten their story wrong. However, there are several reasonable and likely explanations for this. I resonate with one particular explanation. Typically, when I'm trying to teach a principle and I find that an example works, I'll use it over and over again. Some who are around me more than others might get tired of hearing the same thing over again. But I'll use the same stories even with the same group of people, and I'll do that for several different reasons. I might use the same story as a reminder of a principle previously taught. If I want to stress that a point is really important, I may repeat myself. I may do this if I want to make sure that they remember what I'm talking about. And I may retell a story if I think the principle I previously was talking about in the story can be better understood now in the light of new information that I've given. It's very reasonable to conclude that Jesus, when speaking of his return, would use the same illustrations to teach important points. It would have probably been very meaningful for the four disciples present for the Olivet Discourse to hear things like the Noah parable again, in light of what Jesus had just told them regarding the signs of His coming. There's even documentation in Scripture that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about the first time they heard Jesus use the Noah story. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verse 34. says, And they understood none of these things. <laughs> and this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Pretty clear. They didn't get it the first time they heard it. Jesus would have recognized this lack of understanding. It would make perfect sense for him to repeat the information that evening on the Mount of Olives. Given the new information Jesus had just revealed during the Olivet Discourse regarding his coming, what he had previously said on the way to Jerusalem would have been much better understood by the curious disciples. The Luke version of the Noah story that's being compared to the return of Jesus goes like this. And as it was in the days of Noah so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came, and destroyed them all. That's in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 27. The Noah story in the book of Luke is immediately followed by a short summary of the Old Testament character Lot. It says this, Likewise, Also it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's in Luke chapter 17 verses 28 to 30. The original story of Noah is found in the book of Genesis chapter 6 to 9. Noah was said to be a righteous man in the eyes of God. God told Noah to build a large floating vessel in a place where there was no sea and he told him he's going to destroy the earth with water. Noah did as God asked and he and his family were saved because of it. The main message derived from the story of Noah as compared to the return of Jesus is that there will be people caught off guard by his return. These people will be going about their lives, like always, oblivious to the signs that Jesus' return is imminent. However, we need to adequately absorb a key point. Noah was not caught off guard. He was prepared, watchful, and ready when the flood came. He was following the plan given to him. He was prepared for the flood through his attentiveness, his obedience, and devotion to God. This is the point Jesus, Peter, and Paul want us to understand. We do not need to be caught off guard. Another thing we can take away from both the story of Noah and the story of Lot is that once God had seen to the protection of Noah and Lot by taking them out of the way, the judgment of those that remained behind was immediate. So it will be after Jesus gathers his church to himself. Well, a day in the life of Noah looked very different than other people's lives. After receiving his calling from God, by faith, he worked diligently, day after day, in order to be obedient and please his God. This different lifestyle undoubtedly came with a high social price tag. Noah was going against the, quote, science, unquote, of his day. No one had ever observed rain and there was not a body of water close enough for Noah to have taken his ship. Noah lived by faith, belief in what God said he was going to do. Decades came and went in preparation and with no indication of rain, and Noah persisted. Although being a righteous man would have its own benefits in this world, the fact that Noah was so different had to cost him some social relationships. He may have even been thought of as a little crazy or a fool. Yet, because of Noah's faith in something that he couldn't see, based on only a promise from God that it would happen, Noah and his family were saved. Noah lived with certainty and expectancy of what God told him would come to pass. That certainty and expectancy is how hope is defined in the New Testament. It's not like now where hope means making a wish. The comparison is obvious. The watchful elect of God will live in a manner that reflects their belief that what Jesus said is going to happen will come to pass in a very real way. They will work diligently, daily, to please their master so that they'll be found ready to meet him when he returns. Others who have their own priorities in life, who look at the promises of Jesus as foolishness, will be counted among the lost. Jesus isn't asking us to build an ark. He is the ark. He is only asking us to believe in him and what he said, and to be watchful for his return. To be clear, the work we're all given to do as followers of Jesus is to believe in him. Jesus was once asked what the work of God is. This is what John 6, 29 records about how Jesus responded. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. And of course, that's Jesus. Jesus went on to give another example to his disciples regarding the coming harvest. This is Matthew 24, verses 40 to 41. At that time, two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. The book of Luke records Jesus saying much the same thing to his disciples in an earlier passage. This is from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 34 to 35. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. The classic interpretation of this passage states that the ones being suddenly taken are the righteous, and the ones who are left behind are the unrighteous. This illustration Jesus is using represents the rapture of the church. Those who hold to the pre-tribulation rapture prefer this interpretation, although it's strange they do, since many of them don't believe the Olivet Discourse even applies to the church. A second interpretation of this passage says that it's the wicked who are suddenly taken, and the righteous are those who are left. That theory says that Jesus is talking about a time when the earth is cleansed of the wicked. They're suddenly taken away and thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. This was the topic of the last podcast. Those that hold this theory typically use this interpretation against those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Well, after years of studying this topic, the conclusion I've reached is based on the understanding that there are two harvests, like I talked about in the last podcast. My supposition is that most who attempt to interpret this passage of Scripture get too bogged down in attempting to fit this story into one harvest or the other. In my opinion, this passage of Scripture fits nicely with both harvests. The general intention of the passage is to convey the importance of being watchful and being about the business of the master until his return. We're to do so with endurance and in faith. I'm not sure that it's necessary to force a more specific interpretation. Both the church and those that inhabit the coming kingdom of Jesus on this earth during the millennium will be supernaturally protected from God's judgment which will be poured out on the wicked. Both groups will also be going about the business of living a human existence right up until the events of the end of the age occur. The idea is people will be caught away while engaging in day-to-day activities. The fact that some are in bed and some are in the field merely speaks to the fact that this is a worldwide event where both day and night exist at the same time. The people represented in this passage are engaging in activities which would indicate that what Jesus says is true. No one knows the day or hour. Even though followers of Jesus living in close proximity to the end of the age may be watchful and awake and know they are close to the return of Christ, they'll still have to eat, they'll need to sleep, they'll need to support their families, and they'll still fall in love and want to get married. They'll be doing all these things when the angels are sent to gather them. So you may notice all the following statements are absent from Jesus' words. He didn't say, Two shall be sitting in their fallout shelter because they know the end is near, one will be taken and the other left. Two shall be selling all their possessions, giving money to the poor, and preaching the gospel on the street corner. Both shall be taken, because they are such good Christians. Two shall be stockpiling food and weapons because that's what will be needed to survive. One shall be taken and the other left with an outrageous credit card balance. Well, (laughs) there's absolutely nothing wrong with preparing for emergencies. It's a wise thing to do as God gives us the ability. However, followers of Christ preparing their way out of trials and tribulation is not the message of the Olivet Discourse or any other and times-related scripture. Jesus told us that there would be suffering for His namesake. There's no preparation that you can do that will circumvent the plan God has in story for you. Although I didn't manage it directly, as chief deputy of the sheriff's office I worked for for 20 years, one of the areas I had administrative responsibility for was the emergency management section. I know that for any given emergency, There are steps you can take to prepare to mitigate the outcome. I also know there are things that you can do to eliminate certain degrees of risk. My training included the survival philosophy that if it's predictable, it's preventable. If you don't want your house to be flooded, live above the floodplain. If you don't want a forest fire to burn your house down, create a defensible space around it by removing easily combustible vegetation. What the Olivet Discourse tells us is that although the second coming of Christ is predictable, it's not preventable. The way to be prepared for the second coming of Christ is to be counted amongst those who know Jesus as their Lord and to be watchful. The most important survival advice which can be given in regard to the end of the age is to abide in Christ, to watch for His coming, and be found His faithful servant when He returns. Outside of fleeing to the hills if you live in Jerusalem when you see the abomination of desolation take place, believers are given little practical instruction on their physical survival. The elect of God will need to use their God-given wisdom when it comes to practical physical matters, such as when to stay and when and where to go, how much food to store, or how ready you need to be to flee. The end of the age will be a time like many other times in history when followers of Jesus will need to rely first on God and secondly on their wisdom and on each other and lastly on their stockpile of food. Don't get me wrong, with my background I can tell you it's important to be prepared for normal emergencies and have the ability to flee quickly or to shelter in place whether the emergency is a hurricane or a forest fire. Well, the idea that people will be going about their regular business gives a lot of credibility to the idea that the final sign of a great worldwide earthquake, the sun going black, the moon turning red, and the stars falling from the sky will happen suddenly and immediately before the elect are gathered to Jesus. I believe that the type of watchfulness that Jesus is talking about next in the Olivet Discourse has to do more with abiding in Christ and less with knowing exactly the signs of His coming. No one who is elect of God will be left behind for not having their eschatology exactly correct, or even close to correct. They may become confused, disillusioned, imprisoned, or put to death, but God won't leave them behind because they fail to recognize the final signs. An observation about this scripture that I find very comforting is that even though the Church is in the midst of great persecution and tribulation at the hand of the Antichrist, life, at least for some, will be somewhat normal. When I wrote Watch, the po- the book that this podcast is based on, a few years back, it was estimated that almost 22% of the world's gross domestic product was driven by a shadow economy, or black market. Just because an identification mark will be required by the Antichrist in order to buy or sell doesn't mean that those who don't take it will starve to death. The world has always been full of people that are skilled in circumventing the system. Christians that refuse to abide by the Antichrist's rules will be no different. Let's move on to Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be vigilant, because you don't know what hour your Lord will come. This is the same thing in Mark 13, 33. Pay attention, stay awake, and pray, for you don't know when the time is. Finally, the Luke version, found in chapter 24, verses 34 to 36. And pay attention to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcome by revelry, and drunkenness, and distractions of this life, so that day catches you off guard. For that day will come like a trap on everyone that dwells on the face of the entire earth. Stay awake, therefore, and always pray that you might prevail and escape all these things that are going to happen, and stand before the Son of Man. This is actually some additional good practical advice. Because we can't know exactly when it will take place, Jesus strongly commands that his disciples be sober and watchful. While they pay attention to what's going on in their own lives, they're also to actively perceive what's going on in the world around them. We don't need to watch in order to take some action when Jesus shows up that will allow us to go with him. He'll take care of everything. We also know that we don't need to watch because Jesus' coming will be a secret and only those who are watching closely will see it. Jesus' coming will be no secret. Watchfulness is important for all of the reasons I outlined in some of the earliest podcasts on the Olivet Discourse. Luke 21.34 gives us some further specifics on what it means to be watchful. Paying attention to ourselves so that we don't become distracted by the cares of this life. Jesus seems to be focusing on the kind of watchfulness that has to do with how we conduct our lives while we're waiting for his return. We need to behave in a manner in which we wouldn't be ashamed if the Master were returned today. Included in Jesus' list of distractions is being drunk and engaging in surfeiting, which literally means to experience giddiness and have a headache that's typically associated with being drunk. Surfeiting seems to include everything in the drinking experience, from the point of becoming giddy or having a heavy buzz, through the point of a subsequent hangover. For those who are a little more legalistic-minded about drinking than others, the anti-fermentation types who are leaning back in their chairs with a smirk right now and thinking to themselves, see, I told you so, drinking is a sin, I would point out that surfeiting and drunkenness have to do with overindulgence and not what liquid that you're drinking. I'm not advocating for consuming alcohol at all, but some who have never drank alcohol honestly don't know this. Drinking a beverage containing alcohol does not make you drunk, giddy, or give you a hangover unless you overindulge. Overindulging is different for everyone based on their body mass and their chemistry. The things of this life, both pleasures and troubles, can be distracting and can easily take our focus off of God. Those that are heavily engaged with the world are probably among those who will be caught off guard by the return of Jesus. This portion of the Olivet Discourse is focusing on not only people being caught off guard and surprised by His return, but by being caught off guard in a way that finds them possibly ashamed when the Master returns. Those who are caught off guard are the ones who are overtaken, like when a thief breaks into someone's home in the middle of the night. The following is what the Apostle Paul wrote about being caught off guard. This is found in First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one to three. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace, and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape." The group of people that Paul's talking about are those that are so unaware that they've bought into the idea that the world, most likely due to the efforts of the Antichrist, is a place of peace and safety. No worries! Eat, drink, and be merry. This is the same group of people that the Apostle Peter wrote about. This is found in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 4 to 3. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation." This group of unwatchful mockers that Peter's talking about, confident that life will go on as usual forever are those that will be caught off guard. They'll be leading their lives according to their own self-determined plans instead of according to the wisdom of God. These scriptures serve as warnings. Peter and Paul are not saying that this will be the case for everyone. The message is that it is unnecessary to be overtaken like a thief in the night. Remember, Paul continued in the same passage, "...but you, brothers, are not in darkness." that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be watchful and sober. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4-6. to To drive home the idea of not being caught off guard even further, Jesus continues his Olivet discourse with the following illustration. This is from Matthew chapter 24, verses 43 to 44. But understand this, that if the head of the household would have known at what time the thief would come, he would have watched and not had his house broken into. The same goes for you. Be ready, for at such a time when you don't think, the Son of Man will come. The Gospel of Luke records that Jesus made this same statement to his disciples sometime earlier. This is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 39 to 40. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be you therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not." This imagery of the thief, the same as used later by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-6, and the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, 10-11, is intended to convey the idea of Unexpectancy to those that are not watchful and prepared. Matthew 24, 43 also conveys the idea that those who are not watchful will regret it. Those that believe that they can go through life without being good and faithful servants of God, may want to take note of this scripture and what Jesus says next in his Olivet Discourse. As a personal side note, this particular scripture played a part in my being led to engage in the study of end times to the extent that I have in the past decades. The Bible records that God used the dreams of people on several occasions to foretell the future or guide people's lives. I would always be extremely skeptical if someone were trying to impart some sort of advice to me that they had received in a dream. However, I have had a few very powerful and vivid dreams that have impacted my own life. One of them contained this scripture. In early 1997, I experienced increasing conviction to share with others the things that I had been discovering through my intense study regarding the second coming of Jesus. These discoveries were not new revelations or unique personal interpretations. They were only the result of following a systematic approach to studying the Bible. During the preceding years of study, i had found several things that didn't match up with what I knew was being taught in most evangelical circles. At the time, I was also observing that many Christians were beginning to become distracted with the Y2K fear. The year 2000 computer date interpretation issue was commonly being related to as possibly part of the end times. I mostly ignored the conviction to share what I had learned with others, thinking, who am I to talk to anybody about this stuff? Then one night, I had the dream. It was a dream that I thought was real when it was occurring. In my dream, it was the middle of the night, which it was. I was in my underwear, asleep in my bed which I was, when someone, who was beating on the back door of our house, suddenly awakened me. I jumped out of bed and rushed to the door and looked through the peephole. I saw a very large, hairy, Neanderthal-looking human being with bad teeth. I can still clearly see him in my mind's eye right now. No words were exchanged with this threatening-looking individual. As I was standing there in my underwear, unarmed, thinking about how I would address this situation, Now, mind you, I was a a deputy sheriff at the time, right? So personal security, being prepared, protecting my family, very big in my mind. But during this situation, when I was standing there and I was thinking, what was I going to do to take care of this? This large man, and I say man with air quotes around it, he effortlessly kicked in my door. As I aggressively lunged at him in an effort to protect my sleeping wife and three kids, he grabbed me by the throat, picked me up off the floor, and hurled me against the wall, fifteen feet away. I melted to the floor like a limp noodle. As I tried to make my way to my feet, the, quote, man, <laughs> quickly closed the difference and picked me up again by the neck before I could know or react to what was going on. He again, slammed my body against the wall. As my broken, barely conscious body slumped to the floor, I heard a voice. The voice didn't come from the man. It very clearly and authoritatively said to me, If the owner of the house would have known what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. Even now, uh, decades later, um when I think about that dream, I still get pretty choked up. Like, I woke up breathing really hard, shaking, and in a cold sweat. Soon after, I started a five-year run of intensive study and published a monthly research and teaching publication called The Watchful Watchman. It's the thousands of hours of study and hundreds of pages of notes taken during that period that served as a basis for much of what you've been listening to in this podcast. In summary, as you've heard in the previous podcast of this series on the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave several signs that will occur very soon before his coming. Among those signs are the coming of the Antichrist who commits the act of the abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem. This will be followed by severe persecution of the Jews and the church. Finally, there will be signs in the heavens that will take the form of the sun going black, the moon turning red, the stars appearing to fall from the sky, and a great worldwide earthquake. Despite these signs, no one will know the day or hour of Jesus' return until it happens. The illustrations Jesus used regarding some who were watchful and others who were caught off guard seem to work with both harvests that will take place at the end of the age. However, the most important thing to glean from the illustrations Jesus used is that his followers need to be faithfully and diligently about their master's business until he returns. Believers and non-believers alike will be engaging in normal, day-to-day activities until Jesus' return. As in the times of Noah, before a flood wiped out the world's population, people will be going about their business. They'll still need to eat during the tribulation period. They'll still be getting married, and they'll still need money. Most will not recognize the signs that are coming around them. But the faithful servants of God will remain watchful and not be caught off guard. Well, that's it for this time. Next time, since he brings it up, we'll talk about what it means to be a faithful servant of Jesus. Until then, God bless, be at peace and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at, at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug, at dot I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Café. So long, and God bless.